0: Because sin is pollution, and blood is life, and blood takes away the pollution of sin, hence the animal sacrifices, but it's never enough. But what if God himself were to bleed?
1: Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Bulletin, the official podcast of St. Anthony of Padua. My name is Nate Hoffman. I am the Communication and Development Coordinator here at St. Anthony's. And today I am joined by the Director of Evangelization. Hello, it's Mike Gormley. How y'all doing? Michael Gormley. What's up? How, how are you?
0: I am, I am uh, shockingly overwhelmed by life right now because we're moving. We decided, you know, might as well throw a little more chaos into our lives. We are moving. From uh, one side of 45, all the way over here to the San Anthony side.
1: To the from the from the dark side to the to the light side. Yes, and into the bubble, said. into the
0: bubble. So That's we'll right. be living right off of 1488, sort of at the outskirts of the bubble, maybe ish. But uh, yeah, we'll be living off of Honia, Egypt. Very excited. Have a bigger, bigger land, not a bigger house, bigger land. A little
1: bigger plot. That's great, from, like, kiddos. Yeah. From so. what you've told me of the drive across. Forty-five all the way from fourteen eighty-eight to the other side. Yeah, it takes forever at some sometimes. It's
0: like Mad Max Fury Road. I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of people playing death metal, shooting at you and trying to harpoon you.
1: Witness me, brother. (laughs) Yeah, it's essentially a commute surrounded by death cults.
0: Yeah, yeah, that describes
1: it. First of all. Incredible movie. We don't talk about it enough on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we really need to dive into George Rewin. Miller and all of his, you know, his back catalog. Um, well, good. That's great. Welcome to the, the light side. We're glad to have you closer to work. That means you're going to be spending a lot more time at St. Anthony's. He's going to be really available for one on one conversations to come in to, you know, pick up your shifts, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So. And bless Objects, rosaries, yep. yeah. That's blessings.
1: one thing we have been training our staff on, is to do more <laughs> blessings and sacraments. Uh, hey, I
0: brought this holy water. I could have just given it to you, but I'll sprinkle it around, I guess.
1: <laughs> All right, friends, we are nearing the end of Lent. Uh, you should be hearing this during Holy Week, um, the holiest week of the year. Yes. Which is an interesting thing to say, and I want to ask you about that. But hmm. um, the structure of this podcast is basically going to be a deep dive into Holy Week. We, we have our resident theologian um, here. That's you, Mike. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was like, "Whoa, who is it?" He comes out from behind the desk. No, that's you. You have a big, uh, big shoes to fill there. Clown shoes to fill. Yes. So Holy Week. Why is it called? I mean, what what's the deal with Holy Week? <laughs> hey, what's the deal with Holy Week? Yeah, it's like Good Friday. Like
0: of all the days to call good, it's the day that God we worship was brutally murdered by the people who betrayed him. Okay. Uh, no, it's the reality of the great mysteries of our salvation culminating in what we call the Paschal mystery. You ever heard that phrase, Paschal mystery? I have. I okay. Have heard that so phrase. the word mystery, musterion in the Greek, we think of as like a detective mystery, right? Something to be solved. A problem to be solved, exactly. But a mystery is not necessarily understood in that way. A mystery, theologically, is something that is beyond human reason to comprehend, so it had to be revealed. And that means, because it's a divine reality, it cannot be fully grasped by the human intellect, okay? So everything that occurred by the death of Christ on the cross and by his glorious resurrection, all of that is a mystery. In the age of the church, after the the ascension of Christ, Pope Saint Leo the Great had this great line where he said, what happened in Christ's life has passed over into the mysteries, that is the sacraments of the church. So how he lived, his whole life was salvific. But especially in a unique way, the Paschal mystery of his suffering, death, and resurrection and ascension. So the mysteries that we celebrate of Holy Week intensify our focus on our redemption, right? The hour, as John's gospel puts it, on the lips of our Lord several times in his gospel. That this is the 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 holiness of this week revolves around the hour. Of our Lord, his crucifixion and then his resurrection.
1: The hour, meaning the time. I mean, not not implying the sixty minutes, but like, yes. Does he just mean the hour, as in like your your my hour has come? Yeah. But this notion
0: of fullness, the fullness right? of time. Yeah. Like here it is. This is the hour. Uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen used to have this great line where he said, "The devil has his hour, but God has his day." Right. And so it's like the triumph of Satan on Good Friday was actually his own undoing. We'll get to Good Friday stuff later. Well, let's
1: start at, uh, well, I guess we should start at Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, um, because I'm curious about how. I I am curious about one thing before we get to that, and it's maybe a stupid question, but if there is a time of Jesus' life that is most salvific, Mm -hmm. does that imply that there is a time that is less salvific? No, it implies. Like a least salvific time? No,
0: no, no. But what we want to say is, according to the Old Testament, there were types and prefigurations of the sacrifice of Christ. So, our redemption was won at the moment the divinity united itself to humanity, right? At the, in the Annunciation. At the Annunciation. You just
1: celebrated on March 25th.
0: Yes. And, uh, you know, nine months before Christmas, if you're wondering.
1: And, uh,
0: which will be carved on our new beautiful tabernacle that's going to be in the church, the Our Lady of the Angels uh, Chapel. That's true. It's so beautiful. I mean, that is so insanely beautiful. But the moment of the incarnation, what happened? The divine person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the word, united to his divine personhood, which obviously already has a divine nature, a human nature, a full, complete human nature.
1: Two a, natures, one person. Is Two that
0: natures, what? one person, mm-hmm. an intellect, a will, a human intellect, a human will a human heart that loves, human emotions, hungers, all of that stuff, united to his divine person. So the second person of the Trinity acted in and through a human nature. And so that's why we say that Mary is the Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God, not just the mother of Jesus's body or something weird like that. So when we talk about these mysteries, it culminates in the death of Jesus, right? So that's the way that you got to frame it. It culminates in, The death. It's not like the things lead, you know, his uh, finding of our Lord in the temple or him teaching about, uh, you know, giving the parables, that that stuff doesn't matter, is inconsequential or whatever. In the West, though, we tend to focus on the cross because that's where all the
1: types come together. So everything points towards that in a sense. Yeah. All right, so I want to go through Holy Week, and I want to just ask you some nuggets. Like, give me some nuggets that I can – Either pray on or think about this mm-hmm. this Palm Sunday or next. So starting with Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week, the day Jesus enters into Jerusalem traditionally mm-hmm. on a, on the, the back of a donkey. People bring palms, say Hosanna. Yeah, and, you know, Son of David's here. Stuff, stuff like that. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing there. What what's what what should we know about Palm Sunday?
0: So, again, if you don't know the Old Testament, you don't know what's happening in the New Testament. You really don't. So when Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he knows he's going to die. He says, let's go to Jerusalem, and they're like, Lord, they're going to kill you, Right. Um, oftentimes in, especially in John's gospel, it says the Jews, it doesn't mean Jewish people because obviously Jesus is a Jew, Mary's a Jew. The apostles are all Jews. What it means is the Judeans, the people who live South in Judea who are headquartered in Jerusalem. That's the place of opposition to God, the earthly Jerusalem. So when Jesus goes down to Palm Sunday, uh, or the, in the celebration that we do on Palm Sunday, it's to represent one, the Davidic King, the son of David, Whose family line has been broken for 500 years during the Babylonian captivity, the last Davidic king that we knew about, or the last publicly facing king, rebelled against Babylon. So the generals came down. They took all of his. They first they wiped out the whole city of Jerusalem. They killed as many people as they could. Hold the women and children off into slavery. They brought the king out, and there I can't remember. I think it was Jeconiah. They bring him out, and they bring all of his sons out and they slice their throats right in front of them.
1: And then they blind him. right? And then
0: they take that same knife and shove it into Ah. his eyes and then carry him off in chains. Why? To show that this fabled Davidic line is now over, and it's all your fault. You're going to watch your line end, and now you're going to be the king's slave in Babylon. Like, that's crazy. There has been this brokenness. So when you look at Matthew's Gospel, it does 14 generations from Abraham to King David, 14 generations from David to Babylon, 14 generations from Babylon to Jesus. And when you when you look at this, you see that this is the um the heart of the gospel. It's Jesus is reestablishing the kingdom of God on earth, the kingdom of heaven on earth. To the Jews, that's the kingdom of David, but Jesus is establishing a heavenly kingdom. The kingdom is already in heaven, right? I mean, that's what we pray in the our father. On earth as it is in heaven. So now Jesus is not establishing he's not concerned with an earthly kingdom. He's concerned with bringing the heavenly kingdom to earth. And this is the church, the new Israel of God. So when he enters into Jerusalem, he enters as a son of David. King Solomon, when King Solomon entered into Jerusalem, the literal biological son of David, when he entered into Jerusalem, it was in the midst of a civil war. So there are people that were taking sides. King David's sons were in open rebellion because of King David's adultery and all this stuff. He enters into the kingdom riding on a donkey, the foal of an ass. Right. So now here's Jesus doing the same thing King Solomon, the literal son of David did.
1: He's a descendant of Solomon as well. Is that yeah? The son mean, of David, because son of David, yeah. son of Solomon. So is there some some humility I think is going on with the donkey itself?
0: Yeah, he's not coming in on a war horse like Caesar does. When Caesar would enter a conquered town, as they plow through it, right, and uh, the village army, you know, defeated out in the battlefield or whatever. They roll in with chariots. They roll in with instruments of war, and here he comes with no, with no, um, no platoons, no, no battalions, no regiments, no legions. He comes riding on the full of an ass. Wow!
1: Right. So Palm Sunday, the day with Jesus knowingly, yeah. knowing that he will be killed, he goes back to Jerusalem humbly, but in at the same time. Signifying that he is a descendant of that David. he is the king. He the is true the king. king. The return of the king. Yeah. Uh, wow. When's the Lord of the Ring pod coming out? We got to do. One we got to do that. It's, I'm kind of offended that it hasn't come out. Yeah, it's true. But uh, before
0: Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this is how deep this stuff goes. Scripture says that he goes to the Mount of Olives first, and then comes into Jerusalem. Why? Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem, and so up until we stopped building churches on north-south axes. ...with an altar that face east and a priest who face ad orientum. If you hear people talk about it, they say, oh, the priest with his back to us. The priest isn't... Obviously, he has his back to the people in the Old Mass. But the idea of ad orientum, orient, means Mm -hmm. I'm facing east. And the idea of facing east doesn't just mean I'm facing the tabernacle, I'm facing the altar. It means, and we're all doing the same thing together... What it meant was I'm facing the direction that the Lord will come in glory, Mm -hmm. right? So he will come from the east. So what does Jesus do? Well, the idea of the Ark of the Covenant being restored to the temple of Jerusalem, the prophecy was the Lord will come in his glory and reestablish Israel and Jerusalem, and he will come from the east. So Jesus goes east into the Mount of Olives and then goes – so literally here is the Lord reestablishing the glory of the temple.
1: Is this the easterly direction a spiritual – direction or a physical so it becomes
0: direction. for us a symbolic don't when we think of symbols we tend to be like no oh, i mean it's just a symbol you know right. it doesn't really mean anything say that to a veteran of world war ii who fought in iwo jima and rip up the american flag in front of him you know like symbols carry meaning for ancient people symbols were more meaningful than reality but we're today with our scientific mindset we discount symbols and we want to look at the data right but meaning is found through symbol and so for christ to come from the east right for us to build our liturgies facing east for christians to be buried with their feet facing east so when they rise from the grave they'll be standing facing their risen lord these were all very common things
1: yeah for catholics especially sacraments can be said to be symbols that in 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 yeah, signs and symbols meaning yeah they bring it themselves uh, so Okay.
0: So then you have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Then he goes right into the temple and he cleanses it. And that, oh,
1: that's traditionally this week.
0: Begins to set the whole chain of events. The people are cheering him. They why do they why do we do palms? Do you know why palms?
1: No, I have no idea. Just
0: because they fan so we strip the individual leaves, but you know, palms are big fan branches. They put it on the ground along with their cloaks and garments so that just like the red royal that's what it is it's like the red carpet like a path to walk yeah down. that that the dirt of the road wouldn't touch the donkey's feet because Christ is so holy right so the, he's the royal king so they're calling out Hosanna to the son of David Hosanna and they lay out the palms so and their clothes so it yeah it's like a red robe think about the beauty of that gesture though
1: incredible with your cloak too yeah. you know that's that and, and two
0: people who only had one cloak maybe two. Had right? to
1: you better give one away. Oh snap!
0: So when you think about this, and you're coming to Palm Sunday liturgy, and you're holding that palm branch in your hand, think about this: what what more can I give to Christ Jesus of me? Like how can how can my life show the glory and praise of Christ? Right.
1: That's a great question. What would yeah. I be willing to lay down and get stuck trampled on, get dirty uh, yeah. for for Christ? That's great. So he goes to the temple. He um, cleanses it get some people upset yeah, uh a little bit yeah do you want to dive into that
0: well i do and i don't because when we talk about the temple and its sacredness what does the temple represent the temple is the garden of eden redone right so in the garden of eden what did you have well you had eden which is a land then you have a mountain and on the mountain is a walled garden pa- the word paradise means walled garden and within that garden is where God placed the man and the woman. Formed them from outside the garden, placed them inside the garden. They are to be the priest, the the king, the you know the the one who's in communion with God. So, but what made the garden holy, a temple, is of God's presence. God's presence dwelt there. So then, God's presence dwells on the burning bush. Take your shoes off. God's presence dwells in the tabernacle, the tent. Uh, That was like a mobile temple and then ultimately in the temple in Jerusalem. But it was holy because it's where God's presence dwells and it dwelt on top of this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was gone in the 500s. The prophet Jeremiah took it out before Babylon sacked it and he deliberately hid it and his followers left stones to mark the way. And Jeremiah is like, get rid of them. No one will ever recover this. And so they're like, but don't you like when the Babylonians leave, don't we want to let people know how to find it? And he's like, no. No. Yikes. So it's been lost forever uh, until Indiana Jones.
1: Oh, I saw that movie. Yeah, he found it. That documentary.
0: Yeah, it's a documentary yeah, about my life. And uh, <laughs> but So you think about this, like God's presence dwelt on the lid of that, of the Ark of the Covenant, right, on the lid. It's called the hilasterion, the mercy seat. His presence would come down, and sin would drive God away just like, or drive us from God's presence, just like it did in the garden. So every year on the Day of Atonement, they take blood into the sanctuary, and they throw it on the of on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and they confess the sins of the people so that God's presence can come down.
1: Sometimes I feel like we should be supplying links to things like yeah. Scott Hahn books or Peachy books, that kind of thing, yeah. as, as, we, as I, we talk about this. I
0: love talking about this stuff. Because for me, it gives you so much more meaning. But I know that for most Catholics, when we come to church, church is a place where I go to pray and to worship. But that that deeper sense of like, no, I'm not here to give God my worship. I'm here to enter into the prayer between the Son and the Father.
1: The perfect prayer that has been established. Yeah, We we don't have to provide a good – well, we don't – in a sense, we're not – our prayer – doesn't matter it does matter but we we can go to mass and and the prayer is established there for us yeah
0: and see that's I, I was just talking with a wonderful group um the epic church history Bible study group and uh they asked me um they just asked me about like general stuff about the mass and different things you know different liturgical tweaks that we've been doing and the idea is like when you recover certain aspects of the mass you realize that there is a, dis, a a sharp distinction the church has always drawn between liturgical and devotional. The devotional life should look as much like you as possible because it's your devotion. The liturgical life doesn't matter about your emotions, doesn't matter about your taste in music, or I prefer you to speak and not sing. The church lays out the great, you know, that that's the point of the liturgy is it's this beautiful communal worship that we enter into that's
1: not ours. So it may not exactly look like what I pray with at home. Yeah. My, my rosary and my breviary or whatever else. But yeah. Well, maybe it'll look like my breviary. Well, I met a priest who
0: said, it. I hate praying the rosary. Oh, I same prayer over and over again. And this was a really holy priest. And I was like, really? And he goes, no, nah, I pray it every day. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, but you give me scripture, I can meditate for three hours. And so for him... The rosary didn't connect with him on a whatever level, a heart level, an emotional level, a visceral reaction, gut check level, whatever it is. But scripture does. So what does he do? Well, he does the liturgy of the hours with great devotion. But when he prays the rosary, he does a scriptural rosary. Takes him three times as long, but he realizes if I'm going to enjoy this beautiful, accepted, wonderful prayer of the church, even though I don't like it, I'm going to make it, sh- I'm going to shape it so it looks like me. But we don't do that when it comes to the liturgy, right? The liturgy, the more I make it look like me, the, the less I actually – that's why priests wear vestments. Mm. It's to hide them so that we just see Christ, right? That's, that's the whole point. You know, why do, they, why do people who do stuff in the, like, altar service and whatnot, do they wear white albs? The whiteness is to remind us of our baptismal garment. Like, you're doing this ministry. That's the focus.
1: And this is a good thing for everyone who's entered a new company who, who does something really well, you wouldn't first thing go in and say, I want I want your procedures to look like what I do at home. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, a good way. it's a good analogy. It's okay to say, like, I'll just do what you guys do because you, you have it figured out. And if we do that for companies, how much more so should we do it for the church? Yeah. it 2,000 years of practice at this. Yeah. Yeah, and, so,
0: and then you look at the mystery of Holy Thursday, which, or excuse me, so we were doing Palm Sunday, and then we read the Passion narrative, and we'll go into the Passion more when we talk about Good Friday. But then – so it used to be liturgically passion – so we read the gospel of the passion, the big narration on Palm Sunday. Yeah. We used to do that the week before. It was called, And it started this thing called Passion Tide so that at the end of Lent, as we have the last two weeks of Lent, it, like, focuses you on Good Friday. So then uh, – so they would actually do Passion Sunday, then Palm Sunday, then the mystery of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, Holy Saturday. So now – where You go through Holy Week, and biblically, all the enemies of Christ are coming together. And it's amazing. You have Pontius Pilate and Herod. They did not like each other. And scripture records that from that moment on, over the dealing with Jesus, they actually became friends. You have the wow. chief priests, the Pharisees, which was a political party as much as it was a religious party. And the Sadducees, same thing. They unite the, the chief priests, the scribes, the Levites who minister in the temple, they all all of these forces begin to coalesce around one thing, the destruction of this man, right? It is better that this man should perish than the whole nation, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's the motif that underwrites it all. And you realize, like, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, we all shouted Barabbas. We all shouted Barabbas. crucify him.
1: Right. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start a we Holy are. Thursday. Remix. Let's go back to Holy Thursday because yeah. this that you're like you said, the enemies are combining, they're mm-hmm. they're getting ready, but they need the one they need Judas. They need the spy, yeah. right? Yeah. So let's talk through the um what is it called? Passover celebration yes. that they that they celebrate. Yeah. Um let's talk over Judas doing his thing. Let's yeah. let's talk about the institution of the Eucharist, which occurs on on Holy Thursday. Yeah um where would you begin here
0: i would begin with exodus so classic (laughs) classic gormley move so all four gospels depict the sacrifice of christ on the cross as the passover lamb right the phrase that we use the most in the mass is not jesus's son of david or even son of god but the lamb of god Mm. we use that from the beginning to the end of mass now why do we do that because in the old testament when God claimed a people for himself through the deliverer, Moses, when he did that he, and he liberated them, he took on the identity as redeemer. And the word redeemer means one who buys back. Buy back from what? Slavery, it was a slave market economic term. You have a kinsman redeemer who buys you out of slavery uh, so that a family member doesn't get sold off into debtors, prison, and or you know whatever, sold off for debts. So God reveals himself as, I'm the redeemer of the slaves. Now, how were they redeemed? Well, and it's interesting to note, going back to that liturgy discussion, when God came to Moses and sent him to Pharaoh, the first thing that God said was not, let my people go out of slavery. It was, let my people go to a 3 days journey into the wilderness that they might sacrifice to me the abominations of Egypt so that they can do three days of worship. Right. It was liturgical. Let them walk for three days away from Egypt and there worship me. And then they'll come back. And of course, Pharaoh said, no. Then Pharaoh said, well, just the men go, not the women and children. Well, just the people can go. But one day's journey. Well, maybe they can all go, but only for one day, not a three day. Or um, they have to leave all their herds and flocks here. Like kept trying to do because he knows that like once they are out, why would they ever come back? And it's gonna be so much harder to enslave them again. And then ultimately it was the tenth plague. You remember what the tenth plague is?
1: The firstborn son. Yeah, it's
0: the angel of death will pass over the land of Egypt, and when I see the blood of the paschal lamb on your door, paschal is the Latin is the Greek Latin form of the word pasch, which is the Passover. The word Easter that we have is a you know German pagan thing, mm-hmm. but <laughs> the the word Paschal that in Spanish Pascual and all that stuff. Um, that comes from, it just means Passover. So the Passover lamb was sacrificed. It was an, take an unblemished male lamb in the prime of its life, one year old. You are then to uh, take the lamb, bind it, sacrifice the lamb uh, by slitting its throat, which sounds gross to us, but you know people gotta eat. No, but when you cut the lamb's throat, you're bleeding it out. You catch the blood in a bowl. You take a hyssop branch and you paint your doorpost and lintel with the blood of the animal. The, the lintel is the cross bean, right? You do that, then you roast the lamb whole, which is called a halakha or a holocaust, mm-hmm. a whole burnt offering. So you roast the lamb whole, then you bring the lamb and you have to eat it with your family. And if your family's too small, you bring in another family. So this is family meal. And you eat it with unleavened bread because you're not going to wait for the dough to rise. You're going to leave. Uh, and bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness of slavery. So in this meal, How does God deliver Israel? Through a war? Through viva la revolucion? No. How does God reveal? He comes through liturgy, right? And the liturgy saves the slaves. And so what do they do? They are marked by the blood of the lamb, and there they eat the unleavened bread with the flesh of the lamb. What if your son comes to you and says, Dad, I'm a fourth-level vegan. I don't eat anything with a shadow, right? What happens to that kid in the morning? He's dead. It's not enough for the blood you have to follow the full ritual. What how about i get lamb shaped cookies made, you know, with almond flour cuz i got a little gluten sensitivity. You're dead. Right? This is the rites are life and death, right?
1: So you're saying you're describing this what's in Exodus, a yeah. very specific detailed do this, do this, do this yeah. as liturgy. This As
0: St Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it is the the understanding of Israel is those who eat the sacrifice participate in the altar.
1: So you're saying whoever is in Israel does liturgy. Yeah. That's that's the mark yeah. of a Jew. So
0: the funny thing is, when you're actually reading about the Haggadah, which is what the the original Passover was called, the Passover meal that became ritualized, when you read the story of the Passover, it's fascinating because God's talking to Moses, telling him how to get these uh, Israelites in Egypt prepared for the meal, but it also switches context to how it will be celebrated in memory, or in memorial, as a memorial offering, how it will be done for you. And it keeps switching between the present moment with Moses and Israel and the future Israel that will remember, that will do this in remembrance of them, right? And so it's fascinating when you read, what, what is it, uh, Exodus 12, Exodus 10? I'm trying to remember what chapter it's in. And it and it's brilliant. An unblemished male lamb in the prime of life. That's who Christ is, right? He is, um, he, he was offered whole, not a bone of his was broken uh, his blood was spilled, placed on the doorpost and lintel of our hearts through baptism. And how do we receive uh, the fullness of life? Well, what does Jesus says? You do not have life within you, in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He understands himself as the Passover lamb. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 3, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Right. He's been sacrificed, therefore let us keep the feast. Continue to keep the feast. Yeah.
1: In in remembrance of what happened. Yeah. Fast forward from Moses' time to Jesus' time. Oh, why?
0: So Jesus is the offering. He's the Paschal Lamb. So on the night before he died, he celebrated the Passover of the Jews, of Israel. And in the middle of celebrating it, he instituted the Last Supper.
1: He says, "This what you used to Eucharist. celebrate with the the lamb, you will now celebrate with my body." Which yeah. Will become so, the new lamb. in
0: in the in the Haggadah, the the what we call today the Seder meal, there are four cups and a bunch of psalms that you read in prayer. So, when for instance, when Jesus celebrated, it says they sung a hymn. Well, that was the the great Hallel of I believe it's Psalm one nineteen, might be one eighteen. So, in the Seder meal, there are four cups. There's unleavened bread. There's bitter. Uh, I want to say bitter herbs and spices, like it's, it's just herbs. Chicken. <laughs> no spice. Bitter herbs and uh, the wine, right? And each each stage, you like drink a cup of wine as you celebrate these different things, and you're intoning the prayers. So it's a liturgy that is celebrated in the home, right? This is a liturgy. So within that context, right, it is a liturgy that is a memorial meal, right? So the people who are Jews to this day believe they are in communion with Israel in Egypt that they have brought them forward into time or, or brought back in time with them, that they are in spiritual communion. So Jesus is in the middle of celebrating this particular meal. He takes the bread, the unleavened bread, uh, in the middle of the meal, and after, after the second cup, and he takes the bread into his hands. And he says, take this, all of you. Take this, not take this bread, but take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body, which will, tomorrow... Good Friday, be given up for you. And then he gives it to the 12, and they eat of it. Then scripture says, after they had supped, or after they had eaten, he takes the cup. So this is him, this is now the, the third cup of the meal, of the Haggadah, of, of the Seder meal. He takes the cup, and he says, take this, all of you, and drink of it, for this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, which will be shed for you and for all, or for you and for the many, for the forgiveness of sins." And then as he passes a cup, he says, do this in remembrance or in a memorial or for a commemoration of me. So they all drink the blood, right? So you have the body and blood given out to his disciples in the upper room on the night before he dies. Why? So that the Passover of ancient Israel that liberated them from earthly political oppression and slavery ultimately would be fulfilled in jesus christ the next day when he is sacrificed the same time the actual lambs are being sacrificed for the passover celebration mm, tell jesus. me more about
1: that so the lambs had not been sacrificed yet
0: so in the hebrew temple so many people were coming with their lambs that they began they had to start the meal early and they would start the sacrifices early ultimately in 70 a.d or 67 a.d uh historian josephus recorded about one million jews made pilgrimage throughout the whole roman empire down to israel so you can imagine the sacrifice and you can only be done in the temple temple. so anyway so they go and they do um the sacrifices saint john records it was about the sixth hour when they began the sacrifice that's also when the passover lambs began to be crucified the 12th you know 12 noon and so that's when christ is crucified and he dies three hours later on the cross so the, the, the New Testament authors, the four gospel writers, all four of them are hammering home that Jesus is the new Paschal Lamb. So what we have on Holy Thursday is the same thing that Israel had on the Feast of Passover, a memorial, sacrificial meal that commemorates their salvation from Egypt. Now that meal was then taken up into what we call today the Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass of the Divine Liturgy where the death of Christ anticipated the next day is united to the meal. Why? Because those participate in the altar, the altar being the cross, through the table of the food that they eat. You eat the sacrifice in order to participate in it. So then you move from Holy Thursday and the institution of the Eucharist, uh, the washing of the feet, Mm -hmm. all that stuff, um, into Good Friday.
1: Tell me more about this. You mentioned the four cups. Mm. So they had, oh, had the, yeah, the third totally. cup. After- the third cup is called the cup of benediction. Mm-hmm.
0: St. Paul says, and you'll remember this from a hymn, St. Paul says, is it not the cup of benediction which we bless? Um, the cup of blessing mm-hmm. which we bless. A gem. A, a gem. And we <laughs> do many. Okay. Uh, the fourth cup, what happened to the fourth cup? The fourth cup was drank by Christ on the cross. On the cross, so then they never when they drank raised it. it with a, they raised it to his lips. The scripture even records that they use a hyssop branch. Oh, the same God. branch used to paint the lamb's blood on the doorpost and lintel, right? So that's how far the gospel writers are going to draw your attention that Jesus is our Passover Is lamb. that
1: in all four gospels, Hyssop branch?
0: No, it's only in John's, I think. So when you have this narrative being told, right, now think about what John the Baptist said the first time he sees Jesus.
1: Behold the Lamb of God.
0: Yeah. So all these people in, in John's gospel, John's gospel is three years. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is one year. Right. And John's gospel, the reason why we know it's three years is because in John chapter one, there's a Passover in John chapter six, there's a Passover. And in John 19, it's Passover. So John's gospel is literally built around three Passovers. Mm -hmm. And in the first Passover, Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God. In the second Passover, Jesus gives the bread of life discourse where he said, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. If anyone eats my flesh, he will live forever right? And then the third Passover is his actual, the Holy Thursday and Good Friday. So when you think about that, that's pretty dang significant, right? It's almost like God had a plan that his redeemer would come the deliver. Now think about Moses. Moses was born of the Hebrews, but lived in the house of Pharaoh. Think about Jesus. Like he was a man of two worlds anticipating Christ who was God from God, light from
1: light, true God from true God. But then the Word became flesh. So this is what I'm talking about. when We need to. Have, I need to have these books on hand. These God, this <laughs> yeah. stuff that you have yeah. been steeped in for for many years. Like I, I, that was the first time I've ever heard that that particular parallel between Moses and, and Jesus. I know I was, there are tons of parallels. Yes. But the fact that the I a man was of
0: teaching that a couple months ago, and it, and that connection dawned on me. I was like, wow, Moses is a man of two worlds. Like, you know, obviously it's not the same, but it's an analogy of what Christ would be ultimately.
1: Like Aragorn being, uh, bre- you know, raised in Rivendell, uh, even though he's a man, he's raised with the elves. Is yeah. that what you're getting at? Yes, that's exactly what I'm getting at.
0: And the hands of a king. or The uh, hands, hands of
1: a healer. hands
0: of a healer. All right, so... Lord of the Rings, sneaking into our theology absolutely these parallels are so powerful but they're intentional by the gospel writers they're writing literature about this historic event that occurred and they interpret it right when jesus is in luke's gospel in luke 24 after the resurrection the road to emmaus he says you know they're like we thought he was a messiah we're depressed because he was killed and and the stranger who's walking among them is like don't don't you know you who are slow to believe Like, all of these things had to happen. They're like, what are you talking about? And it said, he opened to them from Moses and all of the prophets all the things concerning himself. And when you sit there and you think about it, you're like, yes, the Old Testament was written, was inspired with the new fulfillment in mind, the New Testament's fulfillment. The only time Jesus ever uses the word testament or covenant is when he's instituting the New Covenant uh, on Holy Thursday, you know, when he's holding the cup in his hand and saying, this is the blood of the New Covenant in exodus 24 when moses is making the covenant with god's people out at sinai he they take they sacrifice a bunch of bulls and the i believe the levites all have them and they sprinkle it over the people and they say behold the blood of the covenant Mm -hmm. and now jesus says behold the blood of the new and everlasting covenant beautiful awesome
1: I think we're. I know there's a lot more to dive into, yes. but I think we're through Good Friday. Let's get. How well, about, let me let me one one thing about Good one. Friday. Let's one. Let's One thing. One thing.
0: Why did they push for him to be crucified?
1: As opposed to beaten another to death, stoned to death, mm-hmm.
0: beheaded. Pick your poison. Rome had it all. Yeah. Why did they shout out crucify him?
1: Uh, it's the worst thing you can do. It's it's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. Is that it?
0: It's so. This is this is my working theory, behind it all. So Another there's theory. yeah, there's a phrase in the book of Deuteronomy that says, "Cursed be any man who hangs from a tree." Saint Peter and Saint Paul in Acts and in their own letters reference this phrase, "Cursed be anyone who hangs yeah, from a tree." Nailed him to a tree, right? Yes, in order to tell us, like, yeah, Christ bore the curse for us, right, as our substitute. He bore the fullness of that curse. So when we hear that phrase, right, I, I would think, well, why would the chief priests and scribes push Pilate to crucify, I find, find no evidence against this man, crucify him? They shouted all the louder. It's because they wanted him hung from a tree to delegitimize his prophetic mission. So let's say he's a prophet. Let's say he's a messiah. The Messiah, yeah, Hosanna, son of David, you know, he's coming in on the fold of an ass. Like, yes, this guy, he's the king, the new Davidic, you know heir but if you don't believe that you have to destroy him well to destroy a king is one thing but to destroy a prophet messiah king that's that's hard you have to delegitimize that this man in the eyes of his audience so if they think he's a prophet or maybe even the son of david restoring the throne you got to hang him from a tree to show how could he be the son of god look he's accursed and jesus would say i am but not with anything i did with what I you did upon your curse yeah
1: I, I am wow yeah jesus takes upon sin in many ways i've heard that he becomes sin so that's cross. a really
0: interesting phrase mm-hmm. uh it comes from second corinthians chapter five he who knew no sin became sin mm-hmm. so that we might become the righteousness of god what does that mean to um a calvinist someone who follows the reformed theology someone who follows the reformer um john calvin um God the Father looked at his son on the cross and said, I damn you, because Jesus had become sin. Okay, that is expressly condemned in the Council of Trent. Um, okay, and, that's not true. That's not what happened. And in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 603. we, J- Jesus Christ did not suffer as if he himself had sinned. So then they always come back with, well, what does this phrase mean then? Yes. And it means in the Greek, what it means in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament – Every time it talks about, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, a sin offering, it just, is, it just says for sin. So it leaves off the word. So in many translations, it'll say, he who knew no sin became a sin offering, which is a better rendition of he who knew no sin became sin, right? Because it'll just say, uh, this is for sin. and Or, yeah, yeah, this is for sin. This is for sin. And it's like, well, no, it's for a sin offering. But in the Septuagint, they didn't speak that way.
1: So on a less theological level, but more of a you know, my personal level, I always think that Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father are separated as far as they possibly could be separated. Even though that they're even though they're Trinity and they're they're one, on the moment of the cross they are as far as apart as they can get. And it's like the Holy Spirit is. You know, so I would say together. that's
0: the creeping Calvinism that has gotten I'm into a creeping Calvinist. You are a creeping Calvinist. That's actually your YouTube handle. Uh Hey, what's up? I'm Nate. I'm the grieving Calvinist, and I'm hiding out in a Catholic church. Development. Um, no, but the the notion is God did not damn His Son on the cross. Okay, the Son and the Father's will are perfectly in line, right? And so He says, He, you know, I laid down My life, and I have the power to take it up again. Why does He do it? In John 17. This is the hour by which the Son is going to be glorified, right? So, what should I say? Save me from this hour? No, it is for this very hour that I came into the world. So, Jesus is in perfect union with the Father. The fullness Even on the of cross, perfect he's union, still, he, Of course, he's Especially in union on the, the cross, cross, because no one loves someone more than when their love is put to the so, absolute extreme. So, death. when
1: he says... But I always wonder like if he if he knew he's doing the right thing isn't there an element of like spiritual suffering he enters into? Yeah, it's absolute spiritual suffering. Desolation even? Yes. Like an experience of separation from the Father. That's what I'm that's what I mean. The right?
0: desolation is the experience of our separation from the Father. Not, he's no. never separated because that would violate the Trinity. Right? That would violate the Trinity. So when you think of um you know his human nature revolted against dying, Father If it's your will, let this cup pass. But not my will, but yours be done. Three times he prayed that prayer. He wept. He sweat blood. It's called hemotidrosis. The blood vessels pop from extreme stress and anxiety and commingle with the uh, sweat glands and literally seep out your skin. That's the intensity of Christ's prayer, right? He suffered the anxiety, the agony in the garden. He really suffered Mm -hmm. emotionally, right? So everyone who has had emotional health issues, mental health issues, Christ entered in to the pits of depression, the heights of anxiety, and everything in between.
1: Every type of suffering you could you could possibly have on. Are,
0: earth. You know, um, as the great uh, Protestant poet John Donne said, "Both Adams are met in me," meaning the first Adam and Christ, the second Adam, the new Adam. And he said, "As the second, as the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, because I was one of the curses of the garden by sweat shall you bring forth bread from the earth." He says. May the second Adam's blood my soul embrace, right? It's this beautiful understanding that he is making of himself an offering, a sacrifice on our behalf to take away, to atone for our sin. Because sin is pollution and blood is life. And blood takes away the pollution of sin, hence the animal sacrifices. But it's never enough. But what if God himself were to bleed? One drop would be enough. So what happens when one when this God doesn't give one drop of blood, but gives all of his blood to the last drop? Well, that's the most perfect expression of the divine love. I give all of me to you. Mm. I give all of me something, something, all of you resurrection crucifix. that's a
1: good song it
0: is i love that song <laughs> wow so now we go into the mystery of holy so let's saturday let's talk about the
1: good stuff yeah let's so jesus is suffering holy saturday though
0: is the weirdest day of the year
1: right i've actually read a little bit about this i was talking to father david about the uh, theologian balthazar mm. and and my understanding of balthazar which is very limited and <laughs> father david is like don't listen to that guy.
0: <laughs> Father David hates von Balthasar. Because he's read a lot of them? No.
1: <laughs> okay, well, tell me more. This separation from the, so this entering into hell, the herring of hell happens on yeah. Holy Saturday. Yeah. Uh, Jesus is dead. Je- is this so this is, Saturday. This is the
0: fascinating thing that I love. His body is still united to the divine person. The body is dead. It is laid in a grave. What did God do in the days of creation on the seventh day?
1: He rested.
0: God rested. So what is Jesus doing? He's resting, right? Like as God, right? That, that's the motif on Saturday, the Shabbat, right? He's laid in the tomb. So he enters into the tomb and his body is dead. This is the, the this cool thing that an Orthodox theologian said. He said the divine person was still united to the dead body, which means that God is still united to us even in our death, right? Like just keep that in mind when you take your loved ones to the threshold of this earthly veil. God dwells fully in that temple, right? If they're in the state of grace and all that glory, right? Just as the, the divine person united himself to the body of Christ, right? He didn't abandon it, even though Christ died, right? So it's just an intense way of viewing it. But then the descent into the dead. These are the things that are very difficult because the earliest creed that we have is the Apostles' Creed. It was a baptismal formula given in the Church of Rome. And the earliest Greek, you know, before they dunk you, do you believe in God, the Father, creator of heaven and earth? I do. Good dunk. <laughs> do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son? And then he said he descended into hell. Not the abode of the dead, not Hades, not Sheol, these different Greek and Hebrew words that were common at that time, but hell. He descended into hell, inferno, right? The Dante's in, in mm-hmm. Inferno. So what did we make of that? Well, there are, there's are. there been a lot of theology, going back to the church fathers, about um, well, starting first in in Peter's letter, he talks about Jesus going to speak to the spirits of those in prison. So before heaven was opened by the resurrection, he goes down and speaks and preaches the gospel essentially to the righteous, right. to those who are going to be made righteous. So Abraham, right? You could call this Abraham's bosom, like it is in, in the in um, the New Testament in the Gospels. He goes and preaches, and those from Adam and Eve and Abel, and he brings them up into heaven in the resurrection. Hans von Balthasar talks about Holy Saturday as being the fullest expression of God's kenosis. The word kenosis means uh, self-emptying. So when St. Paul says um, in Philippians, the great hymn of the early church, he did not look at God as a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, dying a death, even death on the cross, right? So when you think about that phrase, how much more can he empty himself? Well, he descends into the grave. How much more can he empty himself? He descends all the way down into God forsakenness where men say no to God. God
1: still says yes to man. So is he preaching to those who have said no to God already?
0: So this is where all this stuff, none of this, uh, we enter in the realm of, Pure speculation, which is Jesus goes into, you could very well say, whatever graces are given the Old Testament saints, because Jesus says this in John chapter, maybe chapter seven, that Abraham long, Abraham looked on, on my day and longed to see it for himself, but he didn't. Like he, that they were given some prophetic vision, but we would say this, whatever graces they were given, those in Abraham's bosom, clearly going to go to heaven, Right. And all of our Christian artwork of, of icons in the East, when Jesus resurrects, he's pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave. Mm-hmm. Right. I love that image. Mm-hmm. I love that. The Hanastasis. Um, the resurrection in Greek. Um, so I don't know.
1: We don't know. We, we don't know. The church says, doesn't have it. He not, said
0: preach to the souls imprisoned, right?
1: Okay. So it's not it's it's that's yeah. cool to me that it's still a mystery that we're diving into. Yeah that, that was one of the things that I was learning about that that. The church, in this, in some senses, it's like, uh, this is all fully defined, we've got this, but we're still diving into all these mysteries. And, and yeah. be, just because we've had 2,000 years of practice writing catechisms doesn't mean the catechism in 4,000 A.D. isn't going to be even more refined. You know, yeah. we, we might be—I always think of it as like a, a goalpost or something that we're just— Limiting what's on the outsides of the goalpost, but there's still stuff in the middle yeah. that you can that yeah. in church teaching that we can still refine. And saints in 50 years are going to be talking about this, and theologians yeah. are going to be doing. And this.
0: they and they bear on how we understand the gospel. Like they have to come from and return to what we do know. Mm-hmm. The axiom it's like mathematics, right? There are axioms in math that you can't prove. You have to assume, and all of the testing of it are true, but you can't prove them. But it's from those axioms that you go on to do more work. And so it's like the dogmas are like the axioms of the Catholic Christian faith. Like they're the the lights by which you see. And so for a theologian to engage in speculation from the heart of these axioms, you're going to advance the church's understanding of the mysteries. If the mysteries are inexhaustible, that doesn't mean they're not true. So the truth of it, these axioms express... From that, our theologians work and reflect, and all these things. So, von Balthasar, von Balthasar uh, is somewhat of a controversial figure. I think it's mostly blown up way out of proportion, but um, his understanding of of this Holy Saturday is mm-hmm. is central to his understanding, and he gets it largely from a mystic named Adrian von Speyer. And she Who had dreams, right? She had hardcore physical and emotional experiences of Christ crucified, of Christ's descent into hell, you know, all of these things. And so he derives his Holy Saturday theology from the kenosis, from the Gospels, and also from this woman. So that's why it's interesting.
1: Well, you know, whatever the the theology of it is, we can enter into it spiritually in the sense that Jesus on the Holy Saturday dies. He's still connected with his body. That's a great spiritual insight. Um, And that his suffering does isn't necessarily limited to the cross, right? So yeah. the, the, his, he's experiencing death on this day, yeah. and so we go to Easter Vigil Mass. He's he's dead all day. That's why um, a, a good fast is from Holy Thursday evening. Go to that. Go to that liturgy, and then fast until you go to the Easter Vigil. You know, you're not yeah. only doing Good Friday, but you're doing the day of holy saturday as well because that's a day where christ is in the tomb and celebrate on on the easter vigil after a four-hour liturgy by going to house of pies with me and my wife um, (laughs) where we'll surely be having dining
0: at franciscan we did resurrection parties you do this huge easter vigil that lasts four or five hours you're waiting in line for an an hour or two just to get into the building that's two hours before mass itself starts Funny story, I was sitting, standing in line, I saw a friend of mine, I just walked in, and I just sat next to her, I was like, hey, is it okay if I sit with y'all? And she's like, yeah. And I sat next to her. I didn't realize until the very end of our four-hour-long mass that I was sitting in between her and her sister.
1: Oh, nice. <laughs> it was in the middle of there? Making family. yourself comfortable. Hey, how's hey it going?
0: I just want to sit next to my friend, your mom, you you're visiting. Oh, Cool. <laughs> so silly but yeah and then we celebrate the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world which is the resurrection dr peter Crave puts it this way everything dies the number of things in this universe that dies like if you could say if x represents all the things brought into this universe that ever comes into being all the things that die are equals x as well right like a little mathematical problem right and so everything that comes to be dies everything and here is the one exception to that: that Jesus Christ undid death from the inside out. But even that conquered.
1: phrasing is interesting because he didn't ever, he didn't come into being. But you're saying, well, the, his, yeah, his, his, his body, physical body, yeah, on the 25th yeah. of March, even came into
0: stars being. die, right. right? Galaxies, nebula.
1: I guess if you're into that, you know, old earth theory then think someone who thinks the earth is, you know, a million years old or something like that. <laughs> One of those.
0: I've been watching all these YouTube videos about the James Webb telescope and I'm like, Tell me more <laughs> infrared eyeballs. It's awesome.
1: Uh, cool. I, I think we have gone on for Ooh, a so long much. time. It's so much, so much information. Mike. Where did you get this stuff? And I don't mean Franciscan University. What is a book we can read? I'm going to
0: give you two books. I'm going to give you two book titles. One is called Jesus Christ, An Introduction to Christology by Roke, R-O-C-H Koretsky. He was a priest that taught at the University of Dallas for years. He was a Cistercian priest. Brilliant. And it's a Christology textbook. And right in the middle, it gives you a Christology of the atonement. Right. So what did Jesus's death accomplish? Also called soteriology, the study of salvation. Um, But atonement focuses on the death of Jesus and his resurrection, how it applies. Right. The next book that I'm going to recommend is called Paul, a New Covenant Jew. And it's a very important book. It's written by John Bergsma, Dr. Brant Petrie and someone else. And (laughs) I don't know who it is. And they walk you through Paul's understanding of Christ and I think it's chapter three is on the atonement. And looking at it from a Jewish perspective, it just constantly blows your mind.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. That's cool. All right, Mike, thank you for breaking down the scriptures in a way uh, that always connects the Old Testament to the New we appreciate it. Hey, you're welcome, buddy. Friends, hope to see you at the liturgies, or the liturgy, as Father Dave would say. Yes. It starts from uh, at, on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and, and Holy Saturday. Hope to see yeah. you there. If not, catch your own campus. God bless, everybody. Bye.